Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 56. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. Our special guest is Charles Peachock. And we have a bunch of sponsors on this one. Uh, so let's get to those right now. Let's start with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. If you want information on this group of jugglers, their educational resources, and their yearly festival, this year taking place in Springfield, Massachusetts, go to juggle.org. I have a new book available. It's called 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act. And it's for jugglers and other variety artists. These are tips I collected uh, over my years of performing and from help with my friends, really to try to make a very simple format for you to with knife juggling, torch juggling, what to do at the show, traveling, contracts, so much more in a very simple way to absorb, digest, to help you with your act. So if you want that book, you can get it at amazon.com or contact me directly for an autographed copy. You can email me, danjuggle at gmail.com, contact me at Facebook, call me up only if you have my number. Okay, uh, second is my new toy, the Zing Dama, is available in two different ways. There's the Zing Dama, which is the LED version, is available at Zing Toys, also at Amazon.com and in Walmart, or the original wooden version, the Ring Dama, which you can get at ringdama.com. Now we have a new sponsor, the Audio 8, actually invented by Charles Peachock. Now this is a remote sound system, great for jugglers, magicians, variety artists, because it allows you to control your own cues. For many years, Barry and myself with the Raspini Brothers would go into an event. We got to spend at least an hour, hour and a half with the sound man. And on a one-nighter, it's very difficult for them to even with that much rehearsal to get your cues correct. So what is the Audio Ape? What does it do? What's it for? It's devoted to freeing performers from unnecessary rehearsals, incompetent sound techs, and believe me, there's some out there, and costly embarrassment. Because a lot of times your show could go good, but if the production is, fails you, it kind of reflects on your professionalism. And the Audio Ape provides a simple, elegant remote that works with your iPad, iPhone, or iPod Touch. Now, not only do we trust it, and I tell you, Barry is very demanding on uh, every part of the accoutrements, maybe say, of performing with the sound, lights, contracts, all that stuff is very important to do it professionally. Is he? And he really recommends the Audio Ape. Unfortunately, myself, I'm not very technical, so I had to go to the guy himself, Barry, and say, should I have this as a sponsor? Is this worth sponsoring? And he gave me the big thumbs up. So not only do we trust it, but other pros like Ivan Passell, Team Rootberry, and David Furman swear by the Audio Ape. It allows you to show up and without rehearsals have 100% perfect sound and music cues for your shows. A hands-free remote is available, and the Audio Ape remotes have quickly become the industry standard among top touring professionals. Get yours and never do rehearsals or have a miscue in your show again ever. And Charles, being the great guy he is, is even have a coupon uh, that you can, you can put in with your Audio Ape order. If you put in drop everything when you order your Audio Ape, you'll get a free carry case with every Audio Ape purchased. Also find out about his other products, the Media Monkey, uh, which controls other things besides your sound, lights and effects. And I've convinced him to also do the Gobo Gorilla. I made that one up. But hey, there's so many great things about this Audio Ape, I could go on and on, but it's time now to listen to Charles Peachum. Welcome to the Drop Everything Podcast, number 56, my special guest, Mr. Charles Peachock. Hi, Charles. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Now, you're another guy who lives in Florida. Why are so many uh, jugglers drawn to Florida? <laughs> I don't know. There, there are quite a few ships down there, and there are, I don't know if you know, there's a couple theme parks down there that are kind of doing well. 
Yeah, I got to. We used to go down there to do the Disney properties. Conventions too, and uh, corporate stuff is real big down there too. So a lot of magicians too. A lot of magicians, a lot of variety artists, and especially in the Orlando area too. So I've I felt right at home, and it's been just great hanging with my own kind, hanging with my own peeps. <laughs> Are you live in the city of Orlando, or do you live outside of that, outside of the tourist mecca? No, I live I live right downtown. So downtown. <laughs> Do you? Downtown's a bit. Uh, it's a, it's off the uh, the fake world, basically. You know, the uh, everything that they build for the tourists and and to trap them in there is not really my part of my world. It's about twenty minutes away or fifteen minutes away, depending on what you're going to. But everybody who lives downtown kind of does some works in those arenas and doesn't really want to see them while they're off work. Right, you don't sell t-shirts out of your house. And you know, when when gigs get a little low, <laughs> you know, do what you got to do. Exactly. Because when I went down there with Barry, it's a lot of. Uh, theme restaurants and things that don't really resemble real plants or animals. Gift shops that are just the size of Walmart, basically, and are all carrying the same thing. And of course, we have have Anthony Gatto lives out there in Florida. Any Anthony Gatto sightings? Yeah, I connected with him on the phone. He was actually out on site doing a thing for Florida State University. He was redoing their whole uh, parking lot. I just moved down, so we kind of caught up for about 15 minutes or so. He's he's very gracious and very cool guy, so he just kind of asked what I was doing, you know, how things were going. And I was talking to him about his business and he was talking to me about my business that I'm doing with the audio ape and gigs and things like that. So just, you know, really nice. And he's doing great. And it's no big surprise because you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And, and obviously he has such discipline and drive and intelligence at what he applies himself to. So it's no, no surprise that he has a successful business running now. Yeah. I admire what he's done. I mean, yeah. my understanding is that, uh, you know, the juggling got painful. They got difficult to maintain physically. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just sort of speaking secondhand. There was that. He also told me that basically, you know, it's just he wanted to be there for his family. You know, his kids were starting to grow up. He wanted to do go to baseball games and everything like that and not have this other pressure on him. And, you know, man, I mean, it's an amazing, amazing thing that he's crafted over all these decades. But it's still the same thing. And no matter you know, it's Groundhog Day probably for him at this point because he's doing the same show, the same gig every night. I ran into him one time like eight years ago when I had done a corporate and he came in uh, and picked me up and he was just first one out of the dressing room and he was just like ready to go home and unplug. So uh, I get it. Once nothing new is happening, you can kind of get a little uh, stir crazy or complacent or just want some new engagement. And then on top of it, he has the family going. And I totally respect and he's given more to the juggling world than anybody. If anybody deserves a break and can do what he wants to do, it's him. There's always the two styles, right? You have, like, the guys who put an act together, Eight Minutes, uh, the Chris Cremos, the Albert Lucases, yep. where that's the one act, like, for someone like yourself. And, of course, this isn't the Anthony Gatto podcast. This is about Charles Peachon, yeah. and we'll get to your story. <laughs> but there's always those two schools where there's the, the act. Like, I recently saw Chris Cremo, clip of him from Sarasota Circus, 66, still doing the same act. It looked beautiful, impeccable. <laughs> But a guy like yourself who needed to work up, you know, 45, 50, an hour more of material. That's that's not how I saw my journey when I first started off. No. And the way I saw it was I wanted to be a, a Popovich act. I wanted to be a, a Ignatov. I wanted to be a Gatto. I wanted to go up and just do my seven minutes and uh, juggle my butt off and just do impressive stuff. And that's really all I wanted to do. That was my world. It was technical juggling, going to juggling conventions, like doing competitions. So that's that's all I saw a benefit for, I think. And that, so that's my drive was just going right into the, all that. Now, you know, when you start expanding and you start making crowds laugh and you start seeing the value in that, then your shifting can kind of change a little bit. And it just basically the scales just tipped over the years. 
And luckily, I still get to do the technical stuff. So I get to really hold on to that still and yet still introduce all the comedy and innovative stuff and artistic moments on stage. And so it's kind of a whole collage of all that on stage. And so I think it's all to a good benefit and a good end. Now, you grew up in Ohio. What was the first experience you had with juggling? What's the first time you remember actually even seeing juggling? Well, um, actually, I think I remember seeing it when I was four years old on uh, Sesame Street. So probably, and I remember it being passing clubs. I remember things really young. I have a weird uh, mind like that. Uh, it was I was either three or four, and I watched it. And I think it probably would have to be like Air Jazz or something like that back then, or probably even maybe even something before that. But I remember seeing club passing with a group of three people, and it caught my attention. But then I got into magic, actually. When I moved to Ohio, I was still doing that. And then first juggling exposure was my brother. My brother took it pretty seriously. He could kind of just do three of something. And then he ran into a local juggling club when he was in junior high, I think. And so he kind of joined that cult, and uh, he was getting pretty good. So I was like, I can't – I have to be able to at least do this. I can't have my brother doing all this stuff. And people look at me and say, can you do this? And no. So I just just wanted to learn enough so I could say, yeah, I can do that too. I went to learn three balls, and I just got hooked. It was that, uh, you know, that one wanting to do that next trick, wanting to do that next step. It just totally uh, uh, consumed me. I ran into uh, Jake Gilligan recently, and I told him that I was talking to you for the podcast. And he said you guys were were neighbors growing up and that you would actually juggle together when you were kids. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time together. It was a good, like, uh, two or three years stretch because we were close. So I'd drive down and uh, rehearse at his place, or he would drive up and uh, and rehearse. We, we lived about two hours apart. But, uh, yeah, he was a real driving force being around him, that being that good of a juggler. And so he was kind of a mark for me to chase, which was nice because at that point I kind of jumped past my brother a little bit. But uh, he was still in the house and we were still practicing together and everything. But Jay was kind of a, a nice mark to hit and a, and a great guy to have as a, as a mentor or somebody to try and chase artistically and technically. And what was the young Jay Gilligan like? Was, did he already have sort of the aspirations of being a professional? <laughs> he was a young upstart. No, he was, he was, he was <laughs> at that point he was doing, uh, you know, he was heavy into the competitions. That was his goal too. So for both of us, it was the brass ring at that time. We'd done professional gigs. We'd done strolling gigs, a couple stage things, you know, here and there. But really, we were in the woodshed. We were basically, you know, honing our chops for all those years, and we enjoyed it. And the competition was then game for us at that time. And when did you compete with your brother? You won the, you won the, competition, the team competitions. Yeah, yeah, in 97, we won the team competition. I did the juniors in 93, and I'd only been juggling three years, two years, something like that. And then I did the seniors in 94. Actually, I think you were one of the prelim judges or uh, you, you came backstage with me to check out my outfit after I qualified for seniors, actually. Right. And you said, hey, let me check it out. Just, we just wanted to make sure I wasn't showing up in sweats, you know. And, oh. and, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I wasn't your stylist. Like, no. too much spandex, Charles. Too much spandex. <laughs> take off the shirt, for goodness sakes. Take off the shirt. We'll so, get to that. And we'll get into that. So, yeah, I remember that. And uh, that was in 94, I think. And then I really didn't do competitions after that for a little while. I broke my arm for the 95th year. Actually, I was training for 95. And I broke my arm rollerblading down a, a bad staircase. Oh, uh, right. So that was right before the competition. You know, that was my whole year. I was working toward that. So it was kind of, a, it was bad. It was, it was, I did not feel good about that. But I healed up fine. And uh, and then I didn't do uh, seniors again. At that time, Mark and I started gigging, I think. And so it was a natural thing to train for the teams. And then we did the teams. And on the first go, we got it. So, uh, yeah, after that, we were just gigging full time. What kind of tricks were you guys doing? What were your... Your technical achievements in your competition routine. Do you remember? 
Uh, nice, nice ring passing. I mean, the thing is, I look at it now, even though it's a pretty clean competition and pretty, pretty. I mean, it's just, just 20 years ago, Dan. I mean, it's yeah. just the standard. The, the mark has moved so far. We actually had a Raspini trick in there. We had the uh, double uh, tomahawks or chops, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that. People call us ultimates, I guess. Ultimates with chops. Yeah, ultimate chops, ultimate back crosses. We had a couple of original things that had never been seen in there. So we were pretty proud of what we put together. It was pretty slick. Yeah, that was uh, – I, I, I found that tape somewhere online. Actually, somebody sent me a link to it, and I was just like, wow. But it was good. I looked at it. I was like, no, we did a good job. So I was proud of it. Yeah, I just remember like, your brother, uh, Mark, he always seemed like your younger brother because he's more of a baby face. <laughs> uh, and you were always were sort of the better technical juggler. Now, when you guys did the uh, your, your duos – do you kind of yeah. gravitate towards the straight man comedian thing, or was it? We we really wanted when we were professionally performing on ships. It was we really wanted a balanced look. We didn't want to have one be really good and one you know be the right. funny. And we were good enough to do that. And I mean, there were some times where I, you know I had a better ball act, but you know what? I already was doing clubs and rings, so Mark did the ball act. We sure. always tried to share the stage like that and keep it balanced. And any secrets? I know it's hard working with a partner. I mean. But then you have your separate lives to go to. What's it, what's the difference between like working with a partner? I don't know if you ever worked with anybody besides your brother. But what were the pros and cons of working with family? I think there's pluses and minuses. You know, there's a lot more accountability because you're you know you're going to be with this person. This person is going to be part of your life forever. You know, yeah. <laughs> no matter and, what. Yeah. Yeah, and of course you're a lot more bonded. Or you know, the, you love your brother. You <laughs> put up a little bit more than you would a partner that where you could just write off. Sure. You get to share a lot more memories and things like that. And you've already had a bond beforehand. So there's good and the bad. But I'd say it was probably better than working with somebody that I was uh, just friends with or had a connection with, with through juggling, I think. And are there other Peachoff brothers or just the two of you? No, there's uh, one who went legitimate. Um, he's a financial advisor uh, and really good one. That's good, though. That's convenient. Yeah, and he, yeah, it is very, very convenient. <laughs> Trustworthy, I hope, yeah. Yes, that's great. As somebody, I just say, I just do what he says, basically. There you go. He's got three wonderful kids. Cameron is the oldest one. He took up juggling quite a bit. He was actually getting up to five balls, and he could pass clubs really well. And the other two, not so much, but uh, they're great kids. Um, I'm very close to all of them. Did he feel left out? Was he, is he the youngest of the brothers? No, he was older anyway. Oh, so he, he was okay. too cool for all that anyway. He's like seven years uh, older than me and five years older than Mark. So he was already off doing other adult stuff by the time we were doing our juggling. How long did you guys work together as a team, you and Mark? Uh, I'd say professionally on ships, I think we did about a good six six or seven years. That was the bulk of our work with ships. We did some other stuff, but we were basically on the high seas just uh, doing long contracts. We were just young and hungry and, wow, we can work. And I was right out of high school uh, working and, and uh, traveling the world and doing all I ever wanted to do. So that was great. And what's a long contract on a ship? Are you talking like six months, nine yeah. months? I did one in six months. I've done them in two months. I mean, now I won't do more than five days. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> changed but i can be a little bit more picky now i've i've you know been in this over 20 years so luckily I've, i keep i don't know i keep doing better each year so things things are getting better each year whatever that is whatever is causing it i want well that's professionalism that's uh hard work i try i try man but yeah the ships were great for us and uh, it was a great learning ground because you see a lot of other acts too and you hang out with a lot of other entertainers so it was a good place to cut our teeth and really uh understand what our audience needs and how a show's crafted and and, and the technical aspects you know we were pretty green when we came in anywhere from like how to use microphones to you know how to use lighting and all that stuff like that so we took an interest and and we learned any acts stand out that you work with any stories of meeting
exciting uh, celebrities or, or acts that just ended up on the ships that you want to share? You get a lot of pseudo celebrities out yeah. there, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, B level or, or C level even. Yes, that's what uh, Mickey Dolan's from the Monkees. He was quite a yeah. He was fun to work with. I had Jerry Lewis, but he had just left, I think. There were some names that were out there. They were always pretty cool. The people that were uh, pseudo famous, they knew where they were at on the ladder in the business, and uh, they weren't too bitter. They were just like, "Yeah, it is what it is," and I'm out here, and this is a great paycheck, and you know, uh, it could be worse. <laughs> no, the other ships too. People tend to buddy up. Right. I, I think the entertainers really do stick together because passengers are in vacation mode. They really don't think and act like us because they're drinking and just going to the casino and trying to absorb as much of the ship as possible. We have much more alignment, and so we talk and trade stories and hang out. And yeah, we feel like a little bit more like family. We definitely feel more bonded with other entertainers. Any ports stand out? Any special locations that you, you'd like to recommend or you felt were especially nice? Well, the exotic ones are great, but I just don't do those anymore. You know, I love the med and all that. I stopped traveling internationally about 12 years ago. I just told my agent, I was like, you know what? It's the same show. It's the, the same same paycheck. Like, why am I traveling, you know, halfway across the world and then back again? I was like, this is silly. So I just said, just keep me in the U.S., Canada, a little bit of Mexico, and that's it. And so that's what we've been doing. So I haven't really gone out of the country on ships, but I've been uh, doing other gigs. And also, I've been taking some vacation time, Dan. I've been going to Thailand I just went to. I went to South Africa. I went to Australia. Just totally non-gig related. Just, wow. Uh, joined what's, some time. what's that like? What's, what's, the vaca- what, what's the vacation? Not that I work so much, but I just never travel anywhere unless someone's paying me. What do you do on vacation? I just I, I have a friend always with me traveling, and we just go and see the sights and and absorb the culture and the food, and uh, it's it's great, man. It's uh, you should try it sometime. Too. Yeah, well, maybe maybe when I when I'm done with my retirement, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do something new. Hey, so when you're on the ships, you're with your brother. So without getting you know too personal, yeah. you guys at a certain point, is it just that you wanted more freedom or? Oh, no, I think it was just we always kind of had the end game of, like, uh, splitting that. Because, as you know, as a juggling act that's a team, you don't get paid per person. You get paid per show. Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) And there's not just the money thing. It's also, you know, creativity, being your own person when you're on the ship. Like, you're always tethered to the other guy. When they see you, they're like, hey, where's Mark? And when they saw him, hey, where's Charles? So to have your own identity, to be able to completely have autonomy and make your own schedule and make all your decisions, and, and you know, when it comes to your business and what you want to do and what direction you want to go, how much you want to spend on the act, all these things uh, become available when you when you have a solo act. And so we, we knew that. And so we were moving toward that. We both could juggle, too. It wasn't like we were saying, like one was good and one was the funny one. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had the skill set to do it. And we and we split the act and uh, and things were good. And, and it was the right move to do. And I definitely really believe that. And he's happy, too. So uh, I think it was great. And it was great to to have somebody to lean on when you're first starting out and you're learning everything and you're making mistakes. And also two people to cover the stage because I would do something and he'd get a break backstage or vice versa. And then, you know, we do some stuff together. So it was reams of material in comparison to trying to do one on your own. And now, actually, one of the first things I realized uh, once I split up from him, I was like, man, this is a lot of work. I'm like, I'm on the stage the whole time just cranking, you know, and I don't get a break. My voice doesn't get a break. My arms don't get a break. Like, I'm, it was a lot more work, but I definitely, uh, I definitely thought it was the right move. And I definitely enjoyed being the only one up there and being responsible for everything and, and the good, the good that came with it, too. Yeah, the transition is going to be hard. Like, you know, switching props when you realize, oh, I used to, like, the other guy would cover it. Yeah. And now it's just you. Yep. 
Now, did you find it hard sort of competing in the same industry? Again, were you guys both going after cruises, or was there yeah, not we work? Were, to... but we were. We, we but luckily it was during a time when it was really high season. It was like uh, in the early two thousands when it was. Um, I don't want to say it was a warm body position, but it was definitely if you were good enough you could work and you knew how ships worked and you, you know, you had an act, then you could work. And that definitely all changed uh, around like 2005 or 2006. And it's getting harder and harder because just the standards are going up and a lot of stuff is going in house. So uh, they're, even though the ships are expanding and they're building a lot of them, just the dynamic is changing and definitely the standard has gone up. So it's not as easy as it used to be. So we split at the right time, I think, because we weren't as good solo, but there was some forgiveness in the industry at that point. There was a little bit of give. And so we were able to build up. And then when that, the axe came down a little bit, we could still work. And do you think that the, the juggler itself, the comedy juggler on ships, that sort of has, the role has been diminished and just the idea of it is not as attractive anymore? You know what? I've, I've seen industries uh, come and go with uh, – or cruise lines come and go with uh, booking stuff. Like for a second there, you know, I had a couple of jugglers call me up and say, oh, my celebrity dates got – this was like a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. My celebrity dates got canceled, and I was just like, what? And then I made a couple of calls, and I found out that basically they blanket policy, no more jugglers. Yeah. They're like, we want to, uh, you know, we want to update our image. And that only lasted for about a year and a half or something like that. And then they went, you know, they realized, OK, uh, it was just somebody's bright idea in the office, you know, to be like, no, we're going this, this direction. You know, they want to be the hero in the office. And the, so they try and change stuff. But it's working for a reason. I mean, a variety act is great because they have a skill set and they connect with the audience at the same time. It's great. And it's something different. And as long as you have a good juggling act, I mean, there are some jugglers that, aren't doing our name that that great of a service but at the same time there's some really great ones out there that are that are killing it and really can grab an audience and and hold them and how do you deal with the uh the different cultures do you speak different languages do you i was starting to do that i uh i got frustrated because if you don't practice it it goes away right and so i didn't really like that aspect of it so now i just know enough of everything to kind of get by <laughs> And like you say, you do more show the ships in the States now anyways. You don't do as many international. It's just Spanish. I need to know pretty much. <laughs> and what kind, of, what kind of tricks do you do in your show? What are, what are some of the, the routines you present? I open up, uh, I, you know, I do a technical three, four, and five uh, ball routine. I do seven balls in the show. I do a technical three, four, and five ring uh, routine. And then I do um, a six ring comedy thing. And then I used to do three, four, and five clubs. And now I just do three. I think I found that I do three and I could emote so well into it. Like it, I could give it mm -hmm. some emotion into it. It looked like I was really getting into it. And then for the four and five, you have to kind of, you can't move around the stage as much. You can't, you know, your, your head's up in the air and you're concentrating more, I think. Yeah. And, uh, so it's just not as exciting. I think maybe that's why uh, the old school uh, Russians used to go down from four. They used to start with five and then go down to four and then end with three. And now I kind of see why, I think, because it's, it's faster moving and you can emote more into, like, the three-club stuff. So, yeah, I was watching uh, Mario Borozak, Yeah. and he does that. He has seven clubs. Then he kind of comes back for, like, a three-club uh, finale. Yeah, man. And, and uh, uh, Bilauer or, or Eugene, uh, that uh, guy used to do that, too. Uh, he used to end with three. Um, so I get it. And so now I just do three. If I need extra material, I'll do a different four- and five-club routine, but it's, it's rare I need that. And what's your practice schedule like? I mean, let's just take it from what you, what you used to do 
like when you were younger, and how do you maintain it today? So drastic. When I was younger, it was like those four-hour days. I'm sure you're familiar with them. Yeah. You know, I used to practice until my hands bled. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's definitely changed. I think it's due to the fact that, you know, the travel schedule and everything like that. But you just get diminishing returns. You realize it's you're not going to get an audience more excited because you can do one more object, which is going to take you an hour and a half a day, like daily. You know, <laughs> um, So you just start to shift your priorities. I don't ever want to slide back downhill. So I try and I try and keep it sharp enough that I feel like I'm I can still do what I always could do. But every once in a while, I'll have like this two-week period where I'll just dig in, and then I'll get really back to the level where I was sharp. And that's nice to know that it's still there. I think I cut a practice video last time I did that, and I was really, I was really surprised myself. So that was nice. But no, as far as the daily thing goes, it's just warm-up show day. Sometimes I don't even, I can't. You know, sometimes you get to the gig, and it's go, 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 unpack see this person, check in here, like meet the planner, like do tech, and then you're on stage. So you got to be ready for all that. Now, do you have an act where if you can't practice, you feel you can kind of warm up as you go, like the first tricks kind of get you into it? or That's exactly what you do, and I'm sure you, you've probably practiced this uh, same kind of philosophy. That's I, I really do feel like if you just shoved me on stage and I hadn't practiced in four or five days, I could still do my show and still be like 90, 90 95% there. Yeah, I like to start with something that you can kind of test the lights out and kind of, kind of uh, get comfortable, you know. Yeah, I mean, but there's been there's been times where I haven't been able to look at the lights. One time we were uh, on hold and I just gotten in like, uh, and they were kind of holding the theater, but I didn't get to see the theater. I didn't even see the stage. I was behind the curtain the whole time, and then it was just like first time I ever saw the lighting or the stage was when they opened the curtain for the show to start. That was a full show though, so it was great. It was, it was really, uh, that was a moment where I was like, okay, yeah, uh, I am a professional at this point. <laughs> Do you ever find it to be kind of an out-of-body experience, like you're on stage and you kind of like look at it like... I've, I've been doing that, uh, I did that actually about a week and a half ago or something, and I don't know whether it was I had something else on my mind or whether it just was, uh, it happens. Like when you drive, you know, you drive, you yeah. get in the car, and then all of a sudden you're at the drugstore and you didn't know how you, you don't even remember driving there. It's like... <laughs> It's right. like it's like that. Those moments happen, but they happen briefly on stage, usually during the technical routines, because everything's just kind of on autopilot. Of course, when I'm doing the comedy and things like that, this is not uh, that doesn't happen because I have to be speaking and, and connecting with these people. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, America's Got Talent. Now, did you guys, you guys ever think about it as a team? Because you got on as a solo. Did you guys ever think about it as a team? It wasn't on the air when we were. Oh, right, right, right. What was I guess the other shows were on, but the. The whole reality and the whole competition thing hadn't started yet. No, it hadn't even boomed yet. That show, they were really unkind to jugglers for, for many, many years. Uh, the Passing Zone did well the first first season, but after that, I don't think anybody did well as far as uh, juggling went. So I wasn't too keen to go on the show. They were yeah. asking me for a couple of years, and I was just like, eh, that's, I didn't really want to go on there to uh, to deal with that. So I really wasn't too keen, but eventually I had a kind of a, I had a manager at that point and she basically said that, um, listen, man, this is the new stage. This is the new Leno, like, like it or not, adapt yeah. or die, because this <laughs> is, it. so if you want a shot at something bigger, that, that then you have to do this. And what's the worst can happen? You, you know, I wasn't famous. Uh, if, if, if there was some damaging footage, it really wouldn't hurt my career. I just kind of had to swallow my pride. And really all I was going on there was for a soundbite, you know, just like, oh, just a, a quote that I could pull and put on my demo reel and on a website, you know, that 
one of the judges said that was nice. That's all I thought I really was going to get out of it. And what was the process? Were you invited to do like a private audition or did you just go for the first time up on the stage? I was actually uh, given both opportunities. Uh, actually, I was I was given a straight to taping in front of the judges. Mm. But I wanted to go to the closed auditions because whatever they thought that they were that they were hiring to to do the the uh, taped, I don't know what that was. You know what I mean? I don't know how they because they they have an idea who they want to like. Right. The judges are pretty scripted about what they say and who they're going to buzz and things like that. So I didn't know where they casted me. Basically, mm. I, when I when I showed up, I didn't know what my casting position was going to be. So at that point, I decided it was best to try and do some results in advance and, and show up to the closed audition and show my actual routine and show I had it together and then I was professional and kind of show up big and just nail the routine. And so I made a decision to do that. So I flew down to Vegas to do the closed audition and try and give them a really good impression so that when I did the taping, they would hopefully frame me a little bit better because they they saw what I was bringing. That's very smart. Had you Had you studied the show? Had you watched past episodes yeah and you know you talk to a lot of the people that not just jugglers but other people that were on the show too you get a pretty good picture of how everything moves and works so what was your experience like so you were on uh what six times total yeah including the the results rounds it was six episodes i really only got to do four performances hmm. um so the oh, first, gotcha. right, right. first first one i did was um the glow routine which was one of the other reasons i picked that was because you weren't going to get any stage time before you did the thing. And so I didn't know what the lights were going to look like or anything like that. So I figured black is something I could, uh, it would be the same, you know, mm, or what okay. it looked like. So, and it was different, you know, and it was kind of futuristic or, or cutting edge or whatever you want to call it. And the mm. show stuff like that. So I figured it was a good one to start with. And then I did that one. And then it was um, the fire stuff, which is a danger set. And, at that point, we're in Vegas, so you could end up on the cutting room floor because it's not live at that point. Right, right. You yeah, may yeah. never get your footage out the door. So I wanted to do something that was going to spike ratings and give them something that they wanted to use. And so it was a danger set and actually led the whole series of, uh, of Vegas Week out of all the, all the acts. So did they encourage you to sort of go that danger route? Uh, always. <laughs> I mean, not the first one, actually, because I think they liked the, the glow routine, but... After that, I mean, that's it just spells ratings to them. They just they don't think very uh, creatively. Uh, a lot of times they just they have so many people to answer to. They need those numbers. Trying to kill yourself always gets numbers. The passing zone, they always had some kind of element there. You know, it was a smart mm -hmm. thing to do. I wanted to do something more with it. So I did the glow routine. I did the I did the fire stuff because I knew I could end up on the cutting room floor if I just did something really cool and clever. So I decided to stick to what was going to make their ratings happy. And so it went great, though. And that was the first time I'd actually ever lit myself on fire was that that actual taping. And speaking of ratings, who suggested the, the shirtless Charles Peacock, the glistening torso? <laughs> We had a little spritz on it. Uh, <laughs> a little spritz? Um, <laughs> a, little, a little fluffy going on? <laughs> it actually lent itself anyway. It was almost sure. a safety thing because I was lighting my lower half on fire. So, And it was leather pants, so like not to have a shirt. Right. That catch in the back, so it just kind of made sense, and they were all about it. They are like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. We did that, and yeah, I got just – it was so much camera time. And then it would be like – in the interviews and B-rolls, I just felt like a piece of meat. They were just like... <laughs> now, you always had your shirt off, didn't you, pretty much? Oh, God. <laughs> hey, man. You know, they're, they're there to do their thing, so... So I have to ask, though, 
for the, all the all the jugglers listening. Yeah. Are there juggling groupies? Did you get like any fan letters uh, admiring you for your? It was once. I, once I hit the actually even in the Vegas uh, thing, yeah, I got like pictures that were like hand drawn sent to me. Some people put up fake fan pages. There was a, a, a somebody who changed their name to my name, <laughs> oh my God. her last name to my name. Uh, right. So it was. <laughs> yeah, there was some. There was some kind of surreal parts to it. That's for sure. And you ended up getting in. Uh, uh, I remember a shirtless picture in People magazine. It was quite a surprise. Somebody told me I was in that magazine. I was like, well, what, what could that be? And so I figured it was like a picture of all the finalists or something like that. And I remember going to the grocery store and I was like, just leafing through, it, thinking to myself, what, 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 what the heck is in here? And then when I looked at it, I just, was, I was just stunned. It was like, hmm. it was like a two thirds of the page was me, and I was just. Yeah, yeah. Was just very surreal, but very cool too. It was one of those moments. And you had uh, the prison numbers written across your. That was for that was for the live set. That was for because I covered a uh, jailhouse rock with the piano set. And yeah, the juggling world. I did get some blowback on that one because of course it's Dan's baby, uh, Dan Menendez, who invented that. It was a decision I kind of had to weigh out. It was tough because. At that point, I needed to do something that really caught attention, and I'd been doing that routine probably for about eight years or so. I didn't want to do it like he he did it. You know, I wanted sure. something more to it. I wanted to add more to it. So I did it on a, a full piano, and like instead of hitting electronic notes, we were hitting you know they're tied to the hammers on solenoids on this piano. Um, we added a live band. I played on top of it. I played in front of it. So I tried to do as much as I could. It was funny, too, because the judges, I mean, sorry, my producer behind the scenes, while we were doing the uh, set selection, where we were determining what I was going to be doing for the live segment, they were not about that. Hmm. They even threatened that, like, what if you just get three X's right away and nothing nothing ever comes of it and you, you just have to walk off the stage? They were pretty harsh. But I knew, I was like, there's no way I can do a danger set better than what I did. And this is an amazing piece. And I think the way I'm putting it together is going to really resonate. And it did. In fact, I was the, actually uh, for, what was it? I set a couple records, actually, a, a couple things that never happened on the show. They wrote it. So basically two of the judges gave me an X and the one that's supposed to give me an X didn't, which is Pierce. Oh, okay. That, that got ratings. So since I wasn't giving it to him in the dangerous section, they basically made it so they would get their ratings one way or another. So that was the first time an act ever got uh, two X's, and one of them wasn't from Pierce. So that kind of was like a hook for them. He brought you back, right? He brought you back to the wild card. Well, there was this, too. It was um, So I thought, well, that was cute, but you know, nobody's going to vote for me. That We have the 12 of the best finalists right here. But then I got voted into the top they don't ever reveal it, the fourth or fifth spot, which had never happened either. No act had ever gotten two X's and been voted up by the public to be in the fourth or fifth spot. So I think I made the right decision. It was, it was pretty clear to me that I did. And then, yeah, it was uh, we don't actually know who got the fourth or fifth spot. And then um, the basically the writers made a call to put somebody else through. I was off for like 10 minutes. And my producer ran up to me in the parking lot and was like, no, they want you back on for the – they're going to be on the wild card. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> so – I was immediately back on. and but you, but you knew right away. It wasn't like you're waiting by the phone, like they make, it, they make a picture or appear. No, no, no. They wanted me right away. So that was great. Gotcha. The funny thing is I had no idea what I was going to do at that point. So I, I, I actually on the, on the fourth one, it was kind of a mishmash of a couple things that I had in, in the uh, hopper. I didn't think it was a great set, so that really didn't push me through. But that was okay because, honestly, that was – I was running on fumes at that point. It's you know you have to make a ninety second set that's built for TV that just just really smashes, and that's that's not easy. All those other routines, 
the, the piano thing I'd been working on for eight years, the glow routine I've been working on for seven years. You know, the fire stuff was easy because it just sets up on fire and juggle like I do. But there were a lot of events there, too. But I didn't know what I was going to do for TV after that. But I had a couple ideas. Yeah, it was rough. So I, it was a little bit of a relief, actually. And what was the effect on your career? I mean, was there an immediate, like, interest? Did your price go up? How did, how did it help your, uh, your juggling career? Well, what happens is there's this white hot phase that happens when you get off the show. There's a very, very small window where it's like about three or four weeks. And I was getting calls from producers and all these from very high level, like uh, corporate gigs and things like that. So there was that moment, but then uh, it tapers off and then it's just a slow burn, basically. It's an amazing tool for sure. That footage is definitely, you know, when you get put up for a corporate event, you know the deal. Like you get your videotape piled in with five other good prospects. And uh, that footage, that national footage really puts a USDA grade approved entertainment. And that used to be your stamp of approval because you had all those Tonight Show clips and performing for a president. That was the standard back then. And that's what for Michael Davis, too. I remember he had uh, Ronald Reagan laughing and, uh, and applauding and you know, doubled over. Right. And uh, he said that one appearance made him like half a million dollars in, in corporate work. Yep. So that's really what it, what it is. You, you have to make it work and you have to have an act after it, too. There's so many people who go on the show and they don't have something to sell other than uh, a cute 90-second idea. And did you have a publicist? Did you try to sort of parlay that exposure get on other shows, or how'd you try to follow up? No, I didn't really do that. I think I was a little bit overwhelmed. I don't think I was tooled up for what was going to happen, because like I said, I really wasn't expecting that to happen. Yeah. I had a couple people offer representation or things, but I just, you know, you go with your gut on that stuff, and it just didn't feel yeah. a fit. So I just kind of, uh, I, I did my own thing. And it took a while to me for me to actually really understand uh, how to leverage it. But now I definitely have, and uh, it's still a very vital part of my booking process to get those high-level gigs and some coveted gigs. So, yeah, I'm definitely glad I did it. Do you have any of the talent contests around the world? Any of the other uh, Russia's Got Talent or Romania's <laughs> Got Talent, any of those type of shows? I figure it would, it would be a, probably a step down. If they, if they <laughs> want to do China, China's Got Talent, I would do that. I think – no, it wasn't China's Got Talent. It was a China TV show that wanted me to do something. But China's Got Talent has like a – it's – the viewership is absolutely like through the roof. It's like the, the population of the U.S. It's like 300 million over there. Mm, right, right. I wouldn't be opposed to it, but I'm definitely not seeking them out because I went through it and I, I feel like I did as well as I could, better than I expected. So I think it's best to leave well enough alone. Now, like, so obviously, I think sort of corporate events are, are sort of the, the goal for most jugglers now. They're, they're where the most money is and things like that. And once you have that kind of exposure and you have that on your reel. Yeah. You kind of just go to that, that market. You have to have the goods. You, you know that well and good because corporates, the way you get your corporate is from your last corporate, you know, word of mouth and them recommending you to somebody else or a producer seeing an amazing report from the event and then trusting you and putting you on other stuff. Yeah, I think that's that's really – you need to have that. But, yeah, the, the real gets your foot in the door, that's for sure, and uh, definitely accelerates that whole process. And how do you think the difference is between like a, a keynote, like your keynote is called Catch the Impossible, yeah. and the regular Charles Peachock show? Do you prefer doing one or the other? No, I don't really do a keynote. Um, hmm. Okay. I've looked at it, and it is it is another step for me to do. And definitely, you know how the corporates are. It's 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 return on investment for them, so they have a lot bigger budget for speakers or people that present content yeah. than just uh, funny boys like us. It's, it's alluring. You see a lot of people do it, but... 
my, my heart's just not in it, Dan. And it may it may come in about a, a decade, you know. I might sure, do sure. another chapter. No, I, I don't think it's for me right now. I thought it was, but I'm 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 taking a step back, and things are things are really good, and I got other things going too. So if my heart's not in it, I'm not I'm not going that direction. Well, I think also for the teams, like the passing zone, there's sort of a natural teamwork right. kind of uh, of subject matter. But for the solo guy, usually it's like overcoming risks or or you know <laughs> challenge yourself to. Yeah. It'd be impossible, you know. Balance your schedule, like I mean, yeah, it, yeah, it's a bit cheesy sometimes. Yeah, called soft topic is what we call it in the yeah. world. Yeah, and it's but you know it's it's an infotainment, you know. Um, so they they still get work. Yeah, that's an interesting term, infotainment. Yep, that's an actual term, infotainment. <laughs> you know, you really gave back to the industry because we're. I try to do that too, you know, I with with some of my stuff, but at a certain point, you you saw a need, and you were so right because. Uh, Sound like like handling your cues for a juggler is so difficult. And for a while, like me and Barry had, uh, we'd go in and do an hour, two hour sound cue. And you're the inventor of, a, of an audio system that's also going to be a sponsor here on the podcast. Can you tell us about the Audio Ape? Yeah. Okay. So I mean, remote systems I think came on the scene about um, 20 years ago. I think it was like uh, the first one was Showtech. I think it was $2,500 and that's 20 some years ago. And it was pretty good for its time. And, you know, it, it did its job. It's basically a way to remotely control your cues. I think the first one used um, a mini disc player. Yeah, that's what we had. And you, yeah. Barry had an ankle switch and he'd bring his ankles together. Yep. And there's some magnet. Like I had, I had to ask Barry because I, uh, I was telling you before the podcast, he always controlled all of the tech stuff. Yeah. And when he went to the ankle switch, it was so great, but we had lots of problems with it. It was finicky. Right, right. I don't actually use the ankle switch. I know a lot of people that do with our system. I just have it in the pocket. I just have the cues timed out, so I'm not actually juggling things in the air when I need my music to start. But you can even do it with our system. You can put in a pad, so you can actually push a button and start the trick, and then it, cu- it kick in in about 10 seconds or whatever time you want it to kick in. So you can actually build in that uh, front buffer blank space um but yeah basically what we do the first one was a mini disc and then the second one was um i think the second most popular one was the memory card but if you wanted to change anything you'd have to have your computer with you you'd have to take it out and you'd have to reprogram it and then put it back in and there was no display for it and it was big and bulky we saw all these amazing apps coming out for uh ios and they were just these great pieces of software to run your show sounds. You could crossfade stuff. You could duck a volume down. You could um, fade out and hard pause. You could you could do all these amazing things. But there was no – everybody was using like their Pebble Watch or like a Bluetooth remote or something like that. And it just wasn't a professional-grade solution. And it was just problems people would have. But it was still better than doing tech and counting on a sound guy. Yeah, yes. Nobody could make it for the Apple devices because Apple's so strict and hard to work with. I kind of took up the cause, and I, I did a lot of research. I had I already had a team of engineers that I worked with for some of my show equipment, and so I kind of tapped them, and we got together a proof of concept, and they said, yeah, we can build this. ended up being way more complicated and way more expensive <laughs> than I thought, but that's the way things go. It was a bit of a rabbit hole, but we're here now, and it's it's kind of been universally embraced. I mean, I'm just shocked, actually, how well it's gone and how much people count on it. Like, really, like, top-level professionals 
count on it nightly. So that's been great. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's a remote system. It's about the size of a Zippo. And uh, you have your little iPad there and it has a big heads up display about what queue you're on. And you can jump around too. So if you're like, oh, the audience isn't good for this routine. Let me skip this over. This prop broke. You know, we got to bypass that. Yeah. You can do all that on the fly where you could not do that, even if you had a perfect rehearsal and a, and a 100% correct sound guy. There's no way you can communicate that to him while you're on stage without breaking that magic and that hypnotizing the audience and bringing them out of their ordinary world. Yeah, so you basically have the iPad set up there, and then this thing has a range. You could be outside the theater, and it'll operate. I mean, it's the range is huge on it. So you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about interference. You don't have to worry about other things, cross-talking. It's pretty bulletproof. I mean, if we go on our Facebook page, the one thing that every time something goes wrong, I think, oh, man, maybe maybe we're not as good as we, and we think we are. What am I trying to take on here? I look at the review section, and it's it's uh, all it is is five stars. There's no four-star, no three-star, no two-star. No, they're unmonitored. I can't change them. If somebody wants to put something up, they can. That kind of makes me feel good and, and feel like I'm really doing the community a service, and that's what keeps me on track with that project. Well, you got my partner's seal of approval because, I, like I said, I, I never did it. You know, I think I think in a team it's really good to have that division of labor. Like, like it's not 50-50 in that he does half the tech, I do half the tech. I do half the comedy. He does half the comedy. You were you were like the custom joke writer, and he was like the business end of the contracting and the technical like stuff. But I said for our life, it went from like a two-hour sound check to then Barry doing the cues, which was great. Yeah. But then, like I said, there'd be times when it just wouldn't work. Like, yeah. And of course, I couldn't say anything like, "Hey, Barry, why are the cues working?" <laughs> but I don't know how they worked in the first place. <laughs> but then Barry's always looking for one thing, like like we're talking about our business, whatever. Always improving, always looking for the, the thing that's out there. The better mousetrap. He started hearing about the audio ape and did some research, and uh, that's what we switched to. So uh, for me, that was a good sign that when you came forward and wanted to sponsor, you know, I thought, wow, it's a good product. We got people like uh, Jeff McBride, yeah, Vegas headliners like Nathan uh, Burton uses it nightly. One of the biggest headliners, uh, who's uh, Mark Savard, a hypnotist, uses it nightly. Uh, Ivan uses it all the time. Yeah, Ivan Vassell. Jay Johnson, the Tony Award winner. Yeah, ventriloquist. Yeah, he just he just wrote a huge blog about how he uses it and loves it. So yeah, it's 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 really amazing. It's uh, I'm shocked actually. Sticking with the the Sibian theme, yes, the media monkey is that is that, oh. that does different cues. Yeah, yeah. So it's totally different. So Audio Ape just does your audio tracks, and that's it. So play it does everything that you would want to do with your audio tracks, but that's all it does. If you want to do video or use a computer to start your glow props, or run anything else, lighting, you need a full-blown laptop. And there's pieces of software out there for the laptop that can do show automation, and really well. Stuff that's used at the Olympics and um, the Academy Awards, and Cirque uses it. Uh, it's called QLab, is the one I use. Basically, we just hook into your computer, and uh, we use the exact same remote that we already developed for um, the Audio Ape. So we use pretty much the same technology, but instead of talking to an Apple device, we just act like a keyboard to a uh, to a computer. So we're just sending keystrokes basically to that program. And when can we see the uh, orchestra orangutan and the gobo gorilla? <laughs> are, those, are those coming out soon? Yeah, we'll see. Yes, those are, those are in the works, of course, sir. No, so I want to give you a shout-out, and we'll be uh, talking about uh, the uh, – Audio Ape and the Media Monkey uh, in the next couple of podcasts as, as you'll be our new sponsor. We'll tell people how they can get information and where they can find out about it and how really they can add a really great improvement to their show. Because I know for us, when we added bumpers, which are sort of the, the music that comes on at the end of routines, it helped keep the energy up. It helped make the transitions better. 
And uh, without the sound guy, it was, it was even better. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's amazing. People that leave that on the table and don't put music in their show, it just adds such a such a layer. Uh, just uh, heightens the, all the experiences on stage for the and just look at the way things are so highly produced nowadays. Like anything yeah. on TV or live events, if you if you can't do music and do that right, at least you know that's you're you're not you're not keeping up with the times. Yeah, we liked when we saw acts not using music. You know, we liked it. Yeah, because so, <laughs> it, it added such a professionalism to what we were doing. Like I said, I owe Barry a lot because when it came to technology and adding that kind of ability, I had no idea that was even possible to, right. to remotely control your cues. So, yeah. and so thanks, thanks for doing that, and I hope people will check that out and yeah. and they'll uh, you know add that to their shows because it's a uh, it's a really a, it's a game changer to have that. Thanks, man. Yeah, no, my pleasure because I do the podcast. It's, it's a labor of love. I'm not doing it obviously for the the large sponsorship opportunities <laughs> but when a product comes along that makes sense that we i've actually used and that i can actually say uh yeah it's not that it's not the tens of thousands of dollars you're paying me right because you're not <laughs> but uh it's just like I, like I said i think it's hopes it's uh if i can do like the podcast or anything i can do to get back to the community listening then that's sort of what i'm here for so yeah, it's it's been re- that's actually been the side very very fulfilling thing, man. It's like I was thinking to myself, well, this is re- a side income and it's something else, and I'll learn some things on the way. But I just didn't know what a great feeling it was just to help all my peers out. You know what I mean? And I, sometimes I go backstage. So many people use my product. This happens almost all the time now. When I go on ships on a ship stage, when I talk to the techs and they see me using it, they're like, oh yeah, we see all the acts using that. And when they find out I'm the one. Yeah, yeah. It's like I'm a rock star to them. It doesn't matter that I'm on stage and I'm, uh, you know, I'm a juggling act. That's not what they're impressed with. They're impressed with the fact that I built this piece of tech because that's their world. It's a really cool thing to, you know, have some kind of uh, people like you for not just throwing things in the air for the first time, you know. Well, but you, you are kind of a rock star because because you're one of your side hobbies is that you're a drummer. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 a fun hobby. I was in. A- How far have you taken your your drumming hobby? I was actually I've been I've been doing a lot lately. Yeah. I haven't been in a band in a while and that's really where you really start to Right, right. Cuz you feel a responsibility, you know, and you're practicing a lot and all these things like that. I think that's where I had my biggest growth spurt. I kind of could just play and hold down like a song if I needed to, but I think the big growing phase was like 2000 and one until like 2003 or 4 when I was actually in a band. And I had a huge growth spurt there, and I really enjoyed it. But man, am I glad I, I don't am not in a band for a living, man. It's hard. You ever play on the ships? You ever have to like uh, fill in for for? Yeah, actually, I, I did. There's there's a couple stories. I sometimes I sit in with a lounge band, like if they're playing and they oh, know that'd me. Be fun. Yeah, yeah, cool. Just sit in and kind of surprise people too, because they'll know me from the show, and then I'll sit in and play. So it's kind of fun. But one time the band leader didn't show up. Yvonne, I think his name was, and he didn't show up for a welcome aboard. And I was just doing a little bumper spot. I was just doing like a, a 10 or 12 second, a 12, 10 or 12 minute spot. But Candy, the cruise director, she knew I played drums and the bandmaster, who's also the drummer, didn't show up. <laughs> okay. I, I kind of asked what they needed him for and they're like, oh, there's uh, this uh, production number with the dancers. I said, well, you can use, there's a backing track on the, uh, on what you guys have up in the booth. So you just turn up the drums. Right, uh, right. Okay. And then they said, what's another one? And like, uh, uh, the guy singing Bridge Over Troubled Waters with a piano and drum accompaniment. I'm like, you know what? The piano will be fine. <laughs> and then there was another one. Was like, uh, guy singing uh, "My Girl" with the band. I'm like, okay, yeah, he needs a drummer. So I just, right, right, right. just kind of, I never played the song. Of course, I know the song, and so I just kind of chatted with him real quick about the changes and the count-ins and uh, 
then everything went perfect. I actually have it on tape because um, they played it on the crew channel and they played it on the TV on the in circuit uh, cruise ship TV because it was the welcome show. So I got a tape of it and I actually have that. So that was fun. I have to ask you though, at the drum set, shirt or no shirt? <laughs> it depends on the gig, sir. And the I got gotcha. you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the uh, the audience. The absolutely. If it's late night, yeah, sure. If it's ladies' night, you want to drive them a little crazy, then the uh, <laughs> the just do you have the cabin number on the chest then instead of the. The AGT number? A lot of people ask. That's good. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, we won't get into your private life, Charles. We'll... Well, thank you so much for sparing me. <laughs> but hey, what does the future hold for Are you going to do more ships? Are you focusing on corporates? What's, what's the future for you? No, the scales seem to be tipping a lot, and I'm, I'm doing shorter contracts out here, and it's, I'm making more use of my time, and things are starting to heat up more and more in Orlando with the producers I'm working for and things like that. So the scales are tipping. Every year it gets better. It just goes in the right direction. Uh, so as far as the gigging goes, it's always, one year is always better than the next. There's never been uh, a reverse. Gotta love that. Yeah, I gotta love that. I do. And with all the things that have been happening and all the changes, it's it's amazing. So I've been very lucky there. Uh, all that's going great. And yeah, the scales are starting to tip. And uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, I got this other business running too. So, and, and I like it. So I'm dedicating some of my time. And actually, I have another uh, avenue coming up for performers also. And uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll throw some sponsorship again. We'll oh, okay. Drop a little, uh, I'll drop a little teaser right there. <laughs> well, you, you did tell me how much you invested in the Audio Ape, and, and the, the number is quite staggering. It is. Your commitment to the project. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the, so the, the amount of sponsorship money you paid the, the Drop Everything <laughs> podcast is, at first I felt guilty. Like, I hope he sells some, but when you told me how much you spent, I'm like, Okay. All right. <laughs> hey, it wasn't all my per. I mean, we basically through our sales, we've recouped that. But sure. But I mean, say it's not like uh, like you know, I have a few things I've come up with. Uh, you know, I have a toy and I have a book. But I mean, to actually come up with a tech, like, did you have a technological tech? I don't even know how to say it. A technology background. I mean, did you go to school or? Yeah, I did. I didn't go to school for it. Uh, actually, I went right up from high school into professional performing, but. I actually love circuitry and, uh, you know, building these props. Also, mm. I learned a lot. And also, I, should, I used to collect pinball machines. And so I had a lot of those. I learned a lot about schematics and uh, components and the way electricity moves and works. So I definitely got a little bit of a, a, an education that way. And I really do think the best way to learn is, is on your own because you really absorb it so much better. See, that's something I've never said. I've never said I love circuitry. <laughs> never said, I do love pinball machines, but I never said I love circuitry. I, I dig it, man. I think it's very interesting. So it, I definitely was drawn by it. I just always go in the way of my passions. Whatever they're pulling me, I just I just go in that direction. And I either either I just enjoy it or I enjoy it, and it, and it gives back to me in some way. Now, you know, I'd be amiss not to ask you at least, uh, you know, for some tips because, you know, I find you to be one of the top sort of professional guys. You really have a great commitment to your your craft as a juggler, but also to the business. For someone starting now, like every time is different. Like I know our time was different. Right. When you started is different. Like you say, like the cruises are harder to get in. Mm -hmm. For someone starting their career now, could you give us kind of a, just a, a one or two minutes talk about, about how, how you help them? Not just the audio eight, but just, just some advice as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's tough, man, because, um, you know, you got to look at what level they're at. But let's say they just say they're like a five ball juggler and like a seven club passer and they, they want to make a living at it. Then just for one thing, almost all really successful jugglers, there's been a couple that are just straight comedy jugglers like Michael Davis and things like that. But I, just put in your hours, you know, definitely just 
as long as you love it and you love practicing, then it's not really work. And so definitely have that. And that'll always get you, you know, respected gigs. And, you know, maybe you weren't funny, maybe you weren't dressed right, but at least you could juggle. So you'll always have that. And that that's what makes you, you know, unique and valuable. And maybe you could start at uh, walk around and just, you know, just focus on the juggling at first. You know, you know how it is. We used to get paid to practice. It was like, yeah. you know, walk around and just uh, build shops that way you can. Uh, so And learn to mingle. Learn to mix and mingle. Learn to schmooze. People think that there's there's no shortcut. Unless unless you were born into a circus family where you're trained something right. and, and then you just hand it over, like, the spot, that's the only way it works like that. You and I and everybody else pretty much started at birthday parties. We started at strolling gigs. It's just what you do, and you just slowly chip away and just move up that ladder, and that's really – the journey you need to do that you need to learn all the lessons along the way and you by the time you get to where you are you you appreciate a lot more too well you know thank you so much for taking the time I mean, you're definitely a guy who's who's had the journey who's working his way up the ladder and uh, now that you've been on the drop everything podcast i'm sure skyrocket push you to the you know, skyrocket you to the next level but you don't need my help charles because <laughs> you my friend are a top professional and a good guy thank you so much for being on the drop everything podcast mr charles Peachum. It's my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 56, my conversation with Charles Peachock. Thank you, Charles. Let's also thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA, International Jugglers Association. If you want information about this year's festival, which takes place July 16th through the 22nd in Springfield, Massachusetts, go to juggle.org. You want my book, 1001 Tips on Practicing, Perfecting, and Performing Your Act? Well, it's available at amazon.com. Or by email, you can contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com or on Facebook for an autographed copy. You want one of my toys? Well, go to zingtoys.com or ringdama.com. Do you want an audio ape? I don't blame you. It's the standard for the best remote to control your cues industry-wide. Recommended by top pros like the Raspini Brothers, Ivan Bissell, T. Rootberry, David Furman, and top magicians like Jeff McBride. Now go to audioaperemote.com for all the details. And when you place your order, don't forget this code, drop everything. Because if you put that code in when you order, you'll get a free carry case for every Audio Ape you purchase. Check out the Audio Ape, I really recommend it. Also recommended by my partner who knows a lot more about it than I do. And also I know personally what a drag it is to go in and have your cues blown by a sound guy who only sees your show once. On a one nighter, very difficult to get your cues correctly and you want your bumpers, you want your music, in your control at all times. That's why I recommend the Audio Ape. Go to audioaperemote.com for all the information. Don't forget the code, drop everything for your free carrying case. All right, we thank Charles, we thank our sponsors, thank you the listeners, and drop everything except when you're juggling.